you today. This is Susan Puzio, and I want to welcome you to the Prophetic News radio broadcast on Blog Talk Radio. And we also have our YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel under my name, Susan Puzio, and we have Greedy Preachers TV. That would make a great channel on regular television. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And we have our website, propheticnews.com. Also, if you want to contact me to get in touch with me, you can email me, susan at propheticnews.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Also, we have our book. A very, I feel like this is a very, very important book, especially with the elections that will be coming up in a few years and it looks like Donald Trump will probably run again and so I think people need to know there's there were things that I didn't really know about Donald Trump and his pro-life stand as far as I I thought he was really pro-life and but when I found out that Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, was working with the National Institutes of Health and Tony Fauci, and they were funding these grants from universities around the country, and these universities would use some of the money to experiment on aborted babies And one of the experiments was that they sewed scalps from aborted babies onto mice. Now, when I saw that, that was it for me and Mr. Trump. Because if anybody is pro-life, you're going to do everything in your power to stop these gruesome experiments and to try to change the laws, and that was not done. So maybe some people will say, well, maybe he didn't know. Well, he should have known. He should have known what was going on at the National Institute of Health, and he had plenty of advisors who were supposedly pro-life as well. So I'm not voting for anybody that will not try to put a stop to abortion. We don't know what's going to happen as far as if they overturn Roe v. Wade. It's not going to end abortion because people will still get abortions. They will make laws in different states where they'll make these abortions available. So it's really a matter of evangelism. I think that that's the only way you're going to be able to change people's hearts about murdering their children. 
It's not a form of birth control, although many people use it as a form of birth control. So we have to try to do whatever we can to reach people for Jesus because there isn't a politician that can change somebody's heart. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to focus our, really our goals have to be that we're concerned for evangelism and for giving people the good news because we're, people are looking for some politician to save them because they say, well, we had the good old times when we had Trump as president and now we have bad times because of Biden. But you want your president to have good morals, especially when it comes to life and life concerning unborn children. So, and then, of course, with the situation with Mrs. Moon, Mrs. Hak Jahan Moon, who was married to Sun Young Moon, who claimed to be the Messiah, and he's passed away, and his body has been embalmed, and it's entombed in a glass coffin, and people go and worship and bow before this coffin. Also, Mrs. Moon claims that she is the only begotten daughter of God. So that is alarming. I think that has to be very alarming for Christians. So how could we ever back a candidate that goes and speaks for this woman and says this woman is a wonderful person like Trump did? So my book, President Trump's Pastor Paula White, The Miracle-Selling Huckster, who became the spiritual advisor to the world's most powerful man, it's an important book because... We have to look at the person that's the spiritual advisor, that the person that's being accepted by so many Christians, and they don't know that this woman is not a Christian. She also spoke for Mrs. Moon and says Mrs. Moon loves the Lord and Mrs. Moon is a Christian. Now, what Christian would make that statement when you should know that this woman claims to be the only begotten daughter of God. And we know the Bible says Jesus is the only begotten son of God. So there is no only begotten daughter of God. We're supposed to know that. But because Mrs. Moon must pay huge fees for people to come and speak for her and to hawk for her and to say that she's a Christian and she loves the Lord, and she's a tremendous person, like Trump says. Well, we can't buy that kind of thing because it's just like, it would be just like somebody, a Christian celebrity, so-called, and a political figure years ago, if they had gone to speak for Jim Jones, the notorious cult leader that led over 900 people to commit suicide, he claimed to be God too. So the Bible warns us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So we need to use wisdom about which political candidate we're going to support, even if we had good times and we had prosperity. 
So anyway, that book is available on Amazon, and we, I did a lot of research for this book. There's many documents in there, and uh, it's you can tell people what's in the book, but they have to see the documents. Everything's documented. We don't slander people. We don't make things up about people because that's a good way to get sued. So everything is documented there, and we can, I can back up everything that's been said. It's not conjecture. It's not just, I think so, or maybe so. The evidence is there to prove who uh, Paula White really is and her association with Donald Trump. So you, you see so many people on so-called Christian television and they have these programs where all they do is talk about politics and we have to save America. No, we have to save, help, help to save people, to bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's good to have good government officials and to try to get people into office who have good morals and most of all they have integrity, but those people are few and far between if you know anything about church politics, if you've been involved in church work at all, you know that there's so much politics that goes on and people jockeying for position and people jockeying for paychecks and they kind of leave their integrity behind. So it's just like when we, when we uh, talk to our brothers that are pastors and I've been saved for 40 years, over 41 years, and I've, I've been doing church work, and I've been to hundreds of churches, ministering in churches all over the world. So I have a little bit of knowledge about pastors now. So, and I can see some of the pitfalls that some of my friends have fallen into as far as lording it over God's people. And saying that you're the, uh, I'm the clergy, and you're below me, you're a lay person. And then they kind of put themselves up on a pedestal. Well, you're going to get knocked off because you can't be higher than another Christian. We don't have a hierarchy. The person that's in the hierarchy is the king, and his name is Jesus. So you can't possibly treat people in the congregation like they're not your equals. That won't fly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's not going to fly. Because sooner or later, what I've seen happen to uh, some men, and of course they like to rule, so... When uh, people are pastoring a church, they're called to be an under-shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And especially in the days that we're living in, we already saw with the, the uh, pandemic, and who we have all these prophets out there, but who prophesied this pandemic? Nobody was prophesying this pandemic. Nobody. It came clear out of the blue, and we were all devastated, and shocked, all of a sudden, everything was closed down. 
everything was closed down. If you went riding down the road, some of your busy highways, and you saw there wasn't one thing open, it was like a ghost town. And it was a wake-up call. I think it was a big wake-up call for the church especially because people were still fighting to have their buildings open, and there's nothing wrong with meeting in the building. But the job of a pastor, one of the jobs of a pastor is to teach people to be to grow up in, to, in the things of the Lord so that if the church happens to close up again, which I'm sure it's going to happen again, I'm sure it will, will there, will there uh, there'll be another lockdown. And if you don't teach people how to trust Jesus and how to call on Jesus when they need help, if you're only tr- uh, teaching people to trust on you as the pastor when they need help, there's going to be big trouble for these people. Because we, we're responsible for teaching people to be dependent on Jesus, to know his word, and to be able to stand in the day of trouble. So we, I can see so many of these things that happen to good men and good women of God where they want to rule over people and cause people to be dependent on them to come to the building every Sunday to get fed the word of God. But we're responsible for teaching people to feed themselves. Everybody has a Bible. I don't want people to be dependent on me. I want them to be dependent on the Lord. God said he would use the foolishness of preaching, and he he also used a donkey, so, you know... That shouldn't cause anybody to be puffed up with pride about their ability to uh, gather together a congregation on a Sunday morning. But we can't be Jesus to people in that sense. They're already censoring speech. Dave, who knows how much longer we're going to have on the Internet to be able to even do these broadcasts. They already censor you on platforms like Facebook if you make a copy. Now, isn't it amazing how they have these ways of tracking you that you can make a comment on Facebook and underneath your comment, their fact checkers will say, that's not true. Here's what the truth is. So eventually they're going to do that probably on all the platforms. They do it on YouTube too. I had a video up on YouTube for over 10 years about vaccines that were made from abortion, that they used the cells of aborted babies in these vaccines, and they do. They do. You can do the research online. And then after 10 years of the video being there, just last year they sent me a notice that I was violating their community guidelines. Well, why was I violating the community guidelines when the va- the uh, video had a picture of the package insert that came from one of the vaccine manufacturers that said that they were using human diploid cells? They admitted it on, on the package insert. 
that those cells were in there. So why was I violating the community guidelines? I was only saying what the vaccine manufacturer said. So they took the video down, and then they shadow ban you. You can uh, go from having thousands of views on your channel to just getting hundreds, and sometimes not even a hundred, because they they uh, do things where people can't really find your video. They call it shadow banning because they don't like what you're saying. Well, there's other alternatives to YouTube, of course, but they're not as popular. And when when you look on YouTube and you see some ridiculous video gets like 80 million views or 100 million views, you say to yourself, (laughs) this is crazy because I think I have something important to say that uh, I don't make these videos because I, I want just because I want to be on YouTube and I have, but I feel like the things that I'm saying are important for the body of Christ to know uh, who these people are, who the false prophets are and the false teachers so that we don't get deceived because people are deceived today. They really are deceived. They buy into uh, these false prophets and false teachers and what they're saying and uh, even the other day, I talked to an old friend of mine. We've been friends for 40 years. And she asked me, what, what do you think about the Great Awakening? Well, I don't, I don't see any Great Awakening. I see a great falling away. That's what the Bible predicts. But you have a, you have a segment of Christianity that's talking about a great revival and a great awakening. Yeah, let's have a great revival of the truth. And then she asked me how I liked um, Hank Kuhneman. Well, I don't, I don't care for Hank Kuhneman's teaching. I, I, he's a false prophet. And I base my, uh, the way I, I judge someone that claims to be a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ is how they handle their finances. Do they have integrity? Do they con people for offerings? Do they sell miracles? And Hank Kuhneman and his wife Brenda do. Now, they claim to be prophets of God, and, uh, but yet they tell people that you have to sell $100 or you have to sell $1,000 to get something from God. And that's not true. Jesus never did that. He never told people, never one time did he ever tell people that you have to give me money, put some money in my hand, and it shows me your faith, and then I'll do something for you. So if Jesus didn't do it, then it's not so. So I don't have any respect for these people. I don't, I'm not going to listen to anything they have to say unless I'm doing research to find out what they're saying. And I, and I believe that every Christian should follow the same pattern, is if the person that you respect as a Bible teacher or a pastor or whatever is not, does not have integrity, especially in the financial realm. And if they're conning people and scamming people to get offerings, then turn them off. We shouldn't have anything to do with these people. And if more people would take that stand and stop supporting them financially, they would go away. They would go away. They might have a small ministry where they're not so influential. 
but you can see this. Uh, you can see Hank Kuhneman, uh, especially on this pro. He has his own program on the uh, satellite networks, which is a possibility for him to be seen by millions of people. And then you have, of course, they do. Kenneth Copeland started his own channel, a satellite channel, 24 hours, and he has all these false teachers on there. And uh, they're on with this program, Flashpoint, and they have Lance Wall now, and they have Kuhneman, and they're talking about politics, and they're going out and doing these Save America rallies. Uh, and they all think, well, Trump's like the Messiah, and he's going to come back and save us. Well, <laughs> no, he can't save himself. So God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. And uh, we have to know those that labor among us. We, have to, we, we need to more, know more about the politicians because you can't just take what they say at face value. You have to go and look into things and find out if what they're saying is true. So I didn't know those things about Trump as far as his dealings there with the NIH, National Institutes of Health, and the gruesome experiments that they were funding, billions of dollars have been given to these universities to do these Dr. Frankenstein experiments on these dead children. No Christian should support that. And if you get the opportunity to ask... These people, I would, if I could, if I could contact some of these people and talk to them, yeah, I would like to ask them. I would like to ask Lance Wall now, well, how do you feel about these gruesome experiments that were going on during the Trump administration? Can you, as a Christian, endorse that? Could you, would you ask him the question personally if you could? If I could, I know I could never get to him. It would be a miracle if I could ever get to Donald Trump, and ask him myself, because I would. I would ask him. I would ask him why he was with Mrs. Moon and why he didn't do something about the funding, doing something to stop the funding for these experiments. So if I could go to a church or a conference or whatever and go up to these people and ask them the question... If you're at a conference or you're at a church where some of these people are, maybe you could ask them. How can any Christian endorse these things? We can't. We can't just because we want to save America and we want prosperity. So we have a lot to think about and a lot to do in these days. And it's our responsibility to stay in the word and stay strong in the Lord. And we can't depend on going to a church building every Sunday. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with going to a church building and fellowshipping with the saints. But for the most part, people go to these huge churches. The pastor doesn't even know your name. And you go in and you sit down and you sing, and you listen to the word, and then you go home. You might have fellowship with a few people. So that's the extent of it. 
okay, that's fine if that's what you like. But then it's your responsibility to go home and read the Bible for yourself and to study to show yourself approved because you can't have pastoritis. He's not, he might not be there for you when you need him, but Jesus will always be there for you. You know how it is sometimes when you when you have a problem or you're going through something, you want to call a friend. You do. You want to talk to your close friends and share those things with them. But they're sometimes they're not there. So who sticks closer than a brother? Jesus sticks closer than a brother. So we, we call on the Lord to uh, help us. And I know uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had made a, a statement about communion. And I didn't want, I thought about it and I thought, well, I don't want people to misinterpret what I said. With communion, we don't worship the elements like Catholics do. They worship the wafer and they, they bow before the wafer and they turn the wafer into Jesus. That's what they believe. But we don't do that. It, it, the communion in itself is not holy. And you don't need anybody to bring you communion to your house. You can have, uh, re you can take the elements anytime yourself to remember the Lord's death. It's not a religious exercise in that sense. It's something that we do to remember the Lord's death. That his body was broken for us and he shed his blood. So that's what I meant uh, when I had talked about not spiritualizing it in that sense where we don't worship the elements and we don't believe that the elements actually turn into a sacrament of the body and blood of Jesus. That's n I, never what the Lord meant for people to do because you have millions of people around the world that are worshiping this wafer and worshiping this cup. And they really believe, and talk about deception, that you could actually convince millions of people that Jesus is living in a wafer. And uh, if you've ever been in a Catholic church, if you ever happen to go drive by one and you, just, you decide you're going to go in, You'll see when you walk in there, there's an altar and there's a box on the altar that looks like a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, they believe Jesus is living in there in the chalice that holds the wafer and the, and the wine. And when Catholics go into a church, they bow before that thing. Well, that's not Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven in a body and people saw him ascending into heaven. So he doesn't live in a wafer. So in that sense, it's not a religious exercise. It's something we do in remembrance of what the Lord has done for us. And we remember that in many ways. Also, so I just wanted to clear that up in, in case people understood, misunderstood what I was saying. And uh, that's that. But today I wanted to talk about, I had found some interesting information 
when I, I, I remember years ago when I was coming out of the Word of Faith movement and somebody gave me the book, A Different Gospel by D.R. McConnell. And I really, really liked that book. It had so many truths in it, and he backed it up with uh, footnotes, which I would look at all the footnotes, and usually I would go to the library at the time or order the books if they weren't in the library to check out his sources to see if what he was saying was true. And, and it, it did pan out that way that he had done his homework and the things that he was saying about the Word of Faith movement were so very true. But anyway, it helped me so much to be able to wake up to what these Word of Faith teachers were teaching and they weren't really biblical. So they had talked about E.W. Kenyon and this Emerson School of Oratory that I believe Kenyon had attended. And so looking into this, into some of the people that were involved in this movement and comparing the teachings of uh, E.W. Kenyon and what he was saying about Jesus. And so they believe that Jesus died spiritually, that he died twice, and he went to hell. Well, I don't believe Jesus went to hell at all. No. <laughs> no. Why would Jesus have to go to hell? It doesn't make any sense. So I was able to get a couple of audios here from Kenyon. I'm, I'm going to play those first, and then... There was a preacher that I found on YouTube, and he refutes the whole idea of Jesus dying spiritually and Jesus going to hell. And I like what he had to say as far as discrediting Kenyon. So E.W. Kenyon, he was famous for the faith move, uh, like, well, I guess they, they like to call Kenneth E. Hagen the father of the faith movement. But he got most of his teachings from Kenyon. And when you look at Kenyon's teachings, you'll see they most of these word of faith teachers, they just repeat the things that Kenyon said. And it was a, a philosophy at the time called New Thought. And New Thought, Later, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, uh, the Christian scientist of the science of the minds, uh, the mind sciences, and a lot of these people then were able to get these teachings and run with these things to create these false doctrines and these cults. So let's hear the first audio here from E.W. Kenyon. The word power means ability. Ability to make good, that the word will heal you if you continually confess it. Your body will respond to your mind, and your spirit will gain the lordship over your body and mind. He was not only made sin and separated from his father until his broken heart cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Chapter 5. We died with him. Jesus died twice on the cross. 
I knew this for many years, but I had no scriptural evidence of it. One day I discovered Isaiah 53.9, the answer to my long search. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his deaths. The word death is plural in the Hebrew. Many of you who have Bibles with marginal renderings will notice it. That is, Jesus died two deaths on the cross. He died spiritually before he died physically. In John 10.18, he said that no one could take his life from him. He could not be killed. He could not die. Why? Because his body was not mortal. Jesus had a body like Adam's before he sinned. It was a perfect human body, not mortal nor immortal. It was a body that could not die until sin had taken possession of his spirit. In other words, Jesus had to die spiritually before he could die physically. If Jesus' body had been like yours and mine, then he was not deity. He was not a substitute, and he did not die for our sins. He merely died as a martyr. But if he had a body like the first man, Adam's body, that was not mortal nor subject to death, that would mean subject to Satan, then he was deity. In our last chapter, we saw a man nailed to the cross with Christ. In this, we see the human race died with the crucified one. Paul says, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Romans 6, 8 and 2 Timothy 2, 11. In these scriptures, we notice we died with Christ when he died. He was our substitute. We were one with him on the cross. We were one with him in his death. He died under our judgment in our stead. He died because he was made sin. If we accept him, there can be no judgment for us. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath made him sick. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by the knowledge of himself, shall my righteous servant justify many. That was a quote from E.W. Kenyon. Of course, E.W. Kenyon is not alive anymore but his teachings are available. And you can see he says Jesus died twice. And he, and Jesus died spiritually. Well, that's impossible because Jesus never laid down his divinity. So he could. how can God die spiritually? It doesn't make any sense. But here's the teacher, the other teacher who refutes this teaching. And I agree with this teacher. Exposing the false doctrine that Jesus died spiritually. The question under consideration in these studies, did Jesus actually become sin at Calvary and experience spiritual death, not just physical? Well, the teachers of the JDS heresy insist that he did. Whereas God's word states repeatedly that his death was physical, like the Old Testament type. And we are redeemed, according to Hebrews 10.10, through the offering of the body of Jesus. As we will show you again and again, it is said that Jesus offered his body on our behalf. That is, he gave up his life in death as a substitute. Now, several years ago, when this doctrine first began to be stressed by certain charismatic teachers... I then designated this error for the sake of brevity as the JDS doctrine, standing those initials for Jesus died spiritually, as these erroneous teachers tell us. Therefore, it's going to be referred to as the JDS error. So you'll know what is meant by those initials. Now, did Jesus literally become sin on the cross, as the JDS teachers tell us, or was he a sin offering? 
Are you aware that the Bible clearly shows that Jesus was a sin offering, holy and pure, just as the Old Testament type foreshadowed? And the King James translators would have done better to have translated 2 Corinthians 5.21 as sin offering instead of sin, as we will show. Did Jesus go to hell for three days where he was united in spirit with Satan, who became his master? Well, the JDS teachers tell us that he became one in spirit with Satan, took on his evil nature. The Bible, however, states that at death Jesus went to be with his heavenly Father, not to be with Satan down in the pit. Because as he died, remember, after he said, it is finished, then he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23 and verse 46. Did Jesus redeem man in hell or on the cross? Are you aware that the advocates of the JDS doctrine teach that redemption was accomplished in the pit? Jesus, however, contradicts this error with his own words from the cross, which indicate that he had completed his redemptive work there, for he said, It is finished. Now, whatever deluded men may say to the contrary, these three words stand as a permanent rebuke to the JDS error that teaches that Jesus died spiritually and redeemed man in hell. Did the sinless Son of God, as the JDS teachers tell us, become unregenerate and lost at Calvary? Was he a lost man like all sinners are? Did he have to be born again and justified from sin in the pit as they teach? The JDS position on this matter indicates the enormity of their delusion, for they tell us again and again that the sinless Son of God was lost on the cross, had to be born again, and in hell of all places. How can you be born again in hell? Not only is such teaching heresy, but we also find that the JDS doctrine does not solve the problem of the redemption of sinners. It only creates a new problem. If Jesus became a sinner, then who died for Jesus to redeem him from That's so true. But you hear, the, you hear these people talking like that. You hear, uh, I think it was Fred Price and... Kenneth Copeland, they'll say, "Oh yeah, Jesus had Jesus went to hell and he had to had a fist fight with the devil, and uh, he had to go to hell because he had to be born again." It's just ludicrous. Why do people believe it? Here's another quote from E. W. Kenyon. In that mighty ministry before he arose from the dead, he destroyed death's lordship. When death slew him, it slew itself. He conquered sin when he allowed it to overcome him. He conquered Satan when he let Satan gain the mastery over him. He conquered disease when he let disease take possession of him. He became one with Satan in spiritual death to make us one with God in spiritual life. Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became one with us in weakness, in sin, in disease, and in spiritual death that he might make us one with himself in righteousness, in perfect health, and fellowship with the Father. He became death's prisoner in order to set us free. In the mind of justice, we die to sin and its dominion when we died with Christ. He that hath died is justified from sin, Romans 6, 7. He is free from the lordship of spiritual death. There was in God's mind at the crucifixion a perfect oneness of Christ with us, and in the resurrection and new birth, a perfect oneness of us in Christ. Just as Jesus conquered death by submitting to it, 
we in the new creation conquer Satan by submitting to the lordship of Jesus when he was made sin with our sin, we are healed by becoming partakers of his divine nature. Disease and sickness do not belong to the new creation. It is an abnormal thing in the mind of the Father for a child of God to be sick. We died with him. We died to the dominion of sin. We died to the dominion of disease. We died to the dominion of circumstances and habits. Who his that we having died unto sins might live unto righteousness. This is identification. Our utter oneness with him in sin and judgment on the cross. That we having died unto sins, his death and our death are identical. This is not his physical death. This is spiritual. He died twice there. He partook of our spiritual death. We were utterly one with him in that judgment. That we might live unto righteousness or that we might partake of his righteousness as he partook of our sins, that we might be righteous as he became sin with our sins. He not only had our sin nature, but he had our diseases. He took over our diseases. He put them away when he put sin away. This is thrilling. As he put our sin and diseases away by becoming sin and disease for us, so we partake of his righteousness and healing when we accept his work for us. Christ has died once for all as our sin substitute. He in judgment met the demands of justice for us. He took them with him when he went to the place of substitution, the place of judgment, the place of suffering. I'm convinced that the Father sees us in Christ as perfect as the finished work of Christ is perfect. He saw that our union with Satan was a perfect union. We were one with the devil. He laid our spiritual death on Christ before he arose from the dead. The Father sees us now in all our beauty and perfection in Christ. This beauty is all his own. He made us to please his own heart. We died to sin once for all in Christ. We died to Satan's dominion. We died to the old habits that held us in bondage. We do not need to die again. The theory of our dying daily with Christ comes from the old version, I am crucified, which is an incorrect translation. The passage in 1 Corinthians 15.31 is speaking of Paul's living in the presence of physical death, the expectation of being thrown to the lions in the arena. We died once with Christ. Now we live with him. We reign with him. His perfect redemption is ours. His perfect righteousness is ours. All he is and did is ours. All we are is his. The Father made us one with himself in Christ. Chapter 6. We were buried with him. We have seen how he became sin with our sin, how he became our substitute, bearing our diseases. We have seen him under the absolute dominion and power of the adversary on the cross. We saw him leave the cross, bearing our diseases and sins away as he was conveyed to our place of confinement. We can see Satan's gratification. We can see that great celebration in hell when Satan brought Jesus a captive into the prison house. Read Acts 2, 24, verse 27, and 31 and 32. You remember how the Philistines rejoiced over Samson, and with what joy they put out his eyes and bound him in helplessness. What a gala day it must have been in hell when he who had raised Lazarus from the dead had destroyed the power of death and disease, had ruled the winds and the waves, had fed the hungry, cast out demons, and defeated Satan in open combat, was conquered, and made one with the devil. He was made sick. They could see in him all the diseases of the ages. What an hour it must have been. When the disciples took his body from the cross, embalmed it, and laid it in Joseph's tomb, how little they appreciated what he was going through, and what his sufferings were. How little the world appreciated where Jesus was and what he was doing. They laid his body in the tomb, and the Roman government sealed it and set guards to keep watch to see that the body of Jesus was not stolen. 
They had heard him cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God had forsaken him whom they loved. They had lost all hope. They had thought that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. For three days and three nights, the Lamb of God was our substitute in hell. He was there for us. He had our pains and diseases, our sins and iniquities. He was there, waiting until the claims of justice were fully met. Such an hour had never been, never can be again. There had to be an adequate meeting of the penalty of the transgressions of the human race. And he met them. He became one with Satan when he became sin, as we now become one with him when we are recreated. Isn't that ridiculous? How could God become one with Satan? It's ridiculous. That's word of faith teaching. And you hear, you hear this teaching that uh, I used to scratch my head when I used to hear that, that. When God looks at us, he sees us as perfect. He sees us, uh, doesn't see our sin. Why? He'd have to be blind if he couldn't see that, that, that people's sin. It's so horrible, horrible. Jesus had to go down to hell and fight Satan, and they thought that they had won. No, they were rejoicing in hell when Jesus was there. Anyway, here's the, the teaching that refutes that. Did, did Jesus die spiritually? Now, in an attempt to support the erroneous teaching that Jesus went to hell and not to heaven when he died, and that he redeemed sinners while in the pit, the JDS ministers have concocted an imaginary war in hell story supposedly based upon Colossians 2.15. Now, the remark not even in the passage in Colossians that they refer to. Colossians 2.15 reads, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Now from this one verse, which refers to the victory of Jesus being accomplished on the cross and not in hell, the war in hell story was invented. And this fantasy is usually related with great emotion by these misty-eyed storytellers, the JDS teachers, while the war in hell narrators are in general agreement on its major aspects, the details of this war in hell theory, this story, seem to vary from one storyteller to another, as some seem to vie with others on the embellishment of the heart-rending scenes which supposedly took place in the pit, which, of course, there's not one verse or word or shred of evidence in the Bible to support it. A typical war-in-the-pit version of this fairy tale that I've gathered from the literature and recordings of the JDS ministers runs in essence as follows. Now they tell us that Jesus became sin on the cross when he yielded himself to Satan. He swallowed up the evil nature of Satan, thus becoming one in nature with the devil. Jesus became the serpent, lifted up when he was lifted up on the cross. They allegedly get this from John chapter 3. And then he took upon the diabolical nature of Satan himself. And at this point, he was a lost man crying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He has now died spiritually. As we'll show later, he died physically, not spiritually, becoming unregenerate. They go on to say, 
Upon his physical death, he died twice, we're told, physically and spiritually. His spirit was taken into the pit of hell where he was chained with the fetters of sin and disease and with all the evil of Satan. The devil, we're told, stood before the choir of hell directing the demonic hosts who chorused, We have won, we have conquered the Son of God. And so there followed a great celebration in the pit, inasmuch as Satan now believed he had triumphed over God. However, what he did not know, we're told, is that Jesus, when he became sin and took on Satan's evil nature, was acting as a substitute sinner by identifying as a lost man with them. He was therefore abandoned by God, who was no longer his father, inasmuch as Satan was now his father and master." Jesus suffered agonies beyond description in the pit for three days as all the hosts of hell were upon him. And then suddenly he was justified. From his throne in heaven, we're told, Almighty God arose, put his hands to his mouth, and screamed, It is finished. It is enough. Jesus was now born again and made spiritually alive once more. And then we're told that Jesus walked over to the devil, took him by the collar, threw him to the ground, put his foot on his chest, and took from him the keys to death and Hades and the grave. At this juncture, the Holy Spirit kicked open the gates of hell and raised Jesus from death. He then ascended to the Father, after three days, of course, and announced, I have paid the price. The prison is now open. I like how he calls it a fairy tale. Yeah, it is a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale, but yet they have people believing this stuff. Here's part three of the re refuting the Jesus died spiritually false doctrine. His death at Calvary signify physical or spiritual death. We've already shown it can't be both. Now, it may surprise you that the Bible again and again speaks of his death, but it's always in physical terms, never once spiritually. In the teaching that Jesus died spiritually as well as physically in order to have Jesus identify with sinners who were spiritually dead, we find that the JDS position is out of line with the Word of God. The Bible again and again states that Jesus offered up his body as a sacrifice for sins and that he was put to death in the flesh. Not once do the scriptures state that Jesus died in his spirit. On the contrary, notice the passages that state he died in his body, died physically. Who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24, being put to death in his flesh, according to 1 Peter 3.8. For as much then as Christ suffered for us in the flesh, 1 Peter 4.1. And you has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Again, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, 51. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Hebrews 10, 10. Again, in Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Now, in addition to these clear texts, which indicate that the sacrifice of Jesus constituted the offering of his body of flesh, there are others, like when Jesus said to the opposing religious leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
we are informed that he spake of the temple of his body, John chapter 2. Today I want to give a concluding study concerning the question, did Jesus die spiritually? We are exposing in these teachings the JDS heresy. Yes, and it is a heresy. It's a diabolical heresy, really, is to uh, put Jesus down on that level that he becomes one with Satan and he has to go to hell and beat up the devil. It's ridiculous, but yet there's many famous rich preachers teaching these heresies and people buy it because people don't study the word of God for themselves. And uh, it just, it always disturbs me so much when people try to put Jesus down on a human level. He, he came, the, in Philippians it says he came in the fashion of a man. He looked like a man. He looked like a man, but his mind was the mind of God. He didn't have a he didn't have the mind of a man. He'd have to be schizophrenic that he had one one side of his head was the God mind and the other side was the man mind. No. He knew who he was. He knew what his mission was on earth. He never laid down his divinity. He he always had a God mind. He didn't think like a human being in that sense that the way we think. And I would never want to imagine my Jesus thinking like a human man <laughs> because we, we know some of the thoughts that go through uh, human beings and some of those thoughts aren't so great. Well, those thoughts didn't go through the mind of God. And it, it's very disturbing to... Uh, put Jesus down in that level of being on, on the same level as Satan. It's horrible. Horrible. But I thought that was very interesting, and I was glad I found the... I couldn't have done a better job myself, really, on the teachings and backing it up with Scripture uh, like that preacher did. But here's Kenneth Hagin. Now, we're going to talk a little bit here about some of these new thought philosophies that came out of this Emerson School of Oratory back in the day when we had uh, Phineas Quimby and then you had Maker Mary Baker Eddy and then you had E.W. Kenyon. And he was the one really that brought out a lot of these false teachings that then were repeated like from uh, people like Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Jerry Savelle, Jesse Duplantis, Fred Price, and so on, Marilyn Hickey, and so on, Oral Roberts, and the rest of the crew that bought into these false teachings and then uh, created big Bible colleges, religious institutions, where thousands of other people went out and were teaching the same false doctrines. So it's it's very diabolical, and it, it's been very, very successful because, like the Bible says, I would not have you ignorant brethren, so we're not supposed to be ignorant of spiritual things. And, of course, everybody is working out their salvation with fear and trembling, so we're always learning. I'm not saying that you can't make a mistake in your doctrine because I think we all have certainly made mistakes 
as far as doctrine is concerned. And we always have to be teachable. And we have to be able to look at things and say, well, I believe, I yeah, I believed Word of Faith teachings. Some of it I didn't buy, even when I was in the Word of Faith movement for 15 years. I didn't buy all the teachings. Some of them I did. And uh, I always had so many questions about the prosperity end of it and the way things were done. I didn't, I thought a lot of it was very unfair. And it bothered me that the people at the top, like in any multi-level marketing deal, the people at the top are always the people that are the richest. And they'll tell you, even though they preach faith and they're great men of faith and power, they'll tell you, yet they live by 10%. They're getting 10% of people's money, most of these guys, and then they're buying mansions and jets and they're not using it for the gospel. They're not using it for the gospel. They're using it for themselves. They use it for themselves. But they want to tell you that all you have to do is have faith and all you have to do is sow seeds and all you have to do is tithe and you could be just like us. Well, you can't. You, you, you'll never be like them. The only way you'll ever be like them is if you start a mega church and you're collecting 10% of people's finances, yeah, then you can be like them. But you don't want to be like them. No, you don't want to be like them. No. That's not faith. That's not faith. That's not teaching. The pastor, a pastor of a church is supposed to be an example to people and to show people how to live. So if I'm trying to show somebody how to live by faith and how to trust God, I don't say to people, this is the way that you'll get prosperity. You give me 10% of your money and you sow seeds to my ministry and then God will bless you. That's not faith and that's not integrity. And that's no way to treat God's people. It's abuse. It's spiritual abuse. And I hate it. <laughs> I hate it with a passion. And I hope that as long as I'm alive on this earth, I can speak out against it, and uh, I hope to see a change in a lot of the ways. It's my hope to see a change in the way things are done in churches because most of the churches follow a pattern. You come in, you sing some songs, then they take up the offering, then they beat you over the head twice a week that you have to give us 10%, and you have to do this and you have to do that to get things from God, which Jesus never taught. Jesus never taught that. Never. He never said to people, you better give me 10% of your money, otherwise I can't bless you. I will not hear your prayers and I will put a curse on you. He never said that. Never. And so it's the responsibility then of the men that are standing there in the pulpit every week to... Uh, Teach God's people the right way to do things is to give from your heart, to give because you want to, to give freely, free will offerings. If a church takes up an offering, that's fine. If a ministry takes up an offering, that's fine. But don't lie to people. Don't manipulate people to enrich yourself and then claim that it's a God enriching you when it's not. It's a lie and it's a deception. But that's how things are done today for the most part. 
And I want to see that change for what's coming ahead. There's so many things that are coming ahead of us. We don't know what else we're going to have to go through. We never expected to be going through the things we have been going through these past few years. And then with what's happening with free speech and uh, with calling, quoting Bible scriptures, hate crimes, we don't know what's ahead of us. So it's very, very important for us to preach the gospel and tell people the truth of what the gospel says and then to hold them responsible for looking into the Bible for themselves to find out what it says, be a good Berean and do that. But anyway, here's Kenneth Hagin. And uh, his false teachings here, and then we'll compare it with uh, New Thought. About that time, I saw Jesus standing there. He's, he's, I don't know why it rolled. And when I got up to the gate, he took my hand in his, took his other hand, left hand, reached inside and unlatched the gate and opened it, pulled me through, then pulled the gate to, and then took my right hand in both of his and led me down this pathway through these flowers. Such an aroma. You never smell such an aroma. So beautiful. And, and then it looked like from these flowers, they looked like, a, looked like an incense, looked like smoke was just going up toward heaven. We came to this little arbor in the middle of the, uh, 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 of the beautiful flower garden, and there was a marble bench on either side, north and south side. And so he sat down on this marble bench on the south side and pulled me down beside me, never said a word, hadn't said a word. And then I happened to look to the west, and I saw flowing into that garden a river. Way back up there, it, it, it went back up in the sky. And the way back up in the sky, it looked like it must be uh, 50 yards wide. But as it came down and came into that garden, it what, what must not have been over a few feet wide. <laughs> water just come tumbling into it. And yet, you know, you saw no water other than come tumbling into it. And, and so, you know, I blinked my eyes and looked at it and I said, Lord, well, what does this mean? What, what's the meaning of this? What is, a, what is this garden? And these beautiful flowers. And that beautiful aroma just, just wafting its way up toward heaven. And this river flowing into this garden. It's a river of people. What does it mean? And Jesus said, the river, as you saw the water turn to people. Those are people that I'll visit in these last days from other churches and even other religions besides Christianity. Wherever I can find hungry hearts, I'll visit them and bring them into full salvation and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And those, those that come in, that river are those that will come in. You see them flowing into this garden and the beautiful aroma like incense ascending up into heaven is the praises of these people as they praise and worship me for visiting them. Hallelujah. Now, now, sitting there on that marble pitch beside Jesus, looking toward the west, you see, then right in front of my eyes, the river ceased. You didn't see the fire garden. I saw myself. I saw myself. 
I saw myself preaching for other churches, preaching in them. I saw myself stand in the pulpit and preach in a Baptist church. I saw people come to the front. I saw myself preaching in Presbyterian church. I saw myself preaching in Disciples of Christ, Christian church. I saw myself preaching in other denominational churches. And lo and behold, to my other astonishment, I was raised Southern Baptist. And then, you know, come over among the Pentecostals. I even saw myself preaching for the Roman Catholics. Amen. And you know, everything I saw has come to pass. I said, everything I saw has come to pass. Everything I saw has come to pass. I've been, I've been right there. I preached in churches that are still, was then, Southern Baptist. I mean, they're still in the movement. I asked him about it. Well, he said, they haven't bothered me yet. We had 150 come and be baptized with the Holy Ghost in that church. Hallelujah. In one week's meeting. People fall under the power in that Baptist church all over the front. Disciples of Christ, Christian, yes, sir, yes, sir. I asked the pastor about it. Yeah, he said, I'm, we, we, we're still here. In fact, he said, they don't know what to do with us. <laughs> because he said, you see, you know, they measure us by those that join the church and are baptized in water. We have more church folks, more people join the church, more people have been baptized in water in our church than any other church in our state in the, in the Disciples of Christ. Think about that. Think about that. They, they, they don't understand it. Well, again, we had a uh, hundred and some odd in his church. He, he already had about 400 baptized Holy Ghost before I got there. And now then another 150 filled with the Holy Ghost, falling under the power. Glory to God. Presbyterian church? Yes, sir. Preach there. A Roman Catholic? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Preach there. Amen. Roman Catholic priest said to me, I gave him a testimony of healing. He said to me, you know, and, and what got me was before I before I spoke, they sang. And, and the Roman Catholic priest played a guitar. And they sang the old Pentecostal songs we used to sing twenty-five years ago in Pentecost. <laughs> and worshiped God. My wife and I said, Oh, we went away weeping. We had that kind of spirit twenty-five years ago, and we've lost it in so many of our churches. Same thing, that freshness. That joy. Now remember that, that priest said to me, he said, well, how stupid can you get, dear Lord? You know, he said, we always believed in the miraculous in our church. They do. People don't know about what they don't believe. Think about a little bit of what they do believe. That's the reason God can meet them. There's a deposit of truth that he can bless them on. I don't mean he's blessing everything. He's not blessing everything you believe. <laughs> Dummy. I got that from Norm. <laughs> Amen. Are you listening? But there's a, there's a deposit of truth. And, and uh, he, he said, you know, we believed in the miraculous. We believed in healing. We believe Jesus healing here. He's here. We believe folks would be healed, you know, in some of the places where sometimes they would have vision. Some folks did get healed in some of these places. But he said, it's so simple. I, I don't know why we never thought about just believing the Bible. Well, you was healed. Amen. But he said, thank God the word works today. Amen. Well, thank God it does. Thank God it does. Can you say amen? amen? Praise God forevermore. Now listen to me. 
Where were we? You remember where we went? We got... What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kenneth Hagen. Kenneth Hagen. He always said, he's, he said, I think he saw Jesus six or seven times. He had a book about all his visitations where his so-called Jesus anyway comes and visits him in person and gives him all these instructions. And uh, the reason I know Kenneth Hagin is a false teacher, number one reason, is his testimony. And you can hear his testimony on uh, YouTube or some of the other video channels where he's, he, he says he died and he went to hell. And he died three times. I think he was 11 or 13 or whatever. And he wasn't saved. He goes to the gates of hell and his grandmother and somebody else is praying and he comes back into his body and he goes, dies a second time and goes to hell at the gates. But somebody's praying, he goes, comes back and goes into his body. And then I think he dies a third time and goes and on his way down or on his way up from hell, he gets saved. Now, that contradicts the Bible because you don't get a second chance if you die and go to hell. There is no second chance. So I don't know where they get that from. It's, it's a false teaching. And then he bases his, his ministry on this whole thing. So whenever you hear a testimony, I heard someone on TV the other day saying they weren't saved and they died and they went up to the gates of heaven. You can't go to heaven if you're not saved. You don't go there. It's like Christianity 101 is the reason we're born again is because you have to be born again of the spirit of God. Your old life, you have to give up your old life and you, and you get a brand new life. And Jesus died on the cross so that we could have salvation. So you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to be born again to go to heaven. If you're not born again, you don't go to heaven. You, and you can't go to hell and come back and get saved. It can't happen. It's just, it's not scriptural. So any teacher that's teaching this, it's a false. They're false teachers. And these testimonies, there's so many testimonies now. It seems to be like the fad now of people dying and going to hell, and they're not saved, but they come back and they get saved because they have a praying grandma or whatever. Or they die and they're not saved, and they go to heaven and they see Jesus and. They see all this this beauty, and and uh, then they come back, and they, all of a sudden they get saved. It, that can't happen. I, I don't know what they're seeing. I don't know if they're in a coma or they're on opium or whatever, uh, those drugs that they give you. And so you're seeing things. But if it's not in the Bible, then it's not so. Or as they say, it, it ain't so. <laughs> so... It ain't, <laughs> and uh, it can't be so. So you have to throw those testimonies out. I don't care how nice 
they sound. And you hear him, he said, oh, the flowers, the fragrance of the flowers. And I go to the Catholic Church, and they, oh, they believe a lot of the things. I was raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school for seven years. So I know about Catholicism and we never were told that we had to be born again. We believed that we were born again when we were baptized as babies. And uh, you have a lot of crazy beliefs. You, they don't believe that there's salvation outside of the Catholic Church. So Kenneth Hagin could say whatever he wants. He doesn't know what he's talking about at all. And uh, here's part two of this Kenneth Hagin Nonsense. That is, with your, just like you're there right now, you didn't fall into a trance, your physical senses wasn't suspended, but just exactly like you are now, in the natural, you see, you, you see either Jesus or whatever he wants you to see. Amen. The open vision is the highest type of vision. The uh, fall into a trance is the second highest class of vision, and the spiritual vision is the lowest class of vision. Now, uh, I'll not go into the three revelations right now. I just don't have time. That's not my sermon anyway. I read my message anyway. But the lowest type of vision, the highest type of revelation, are very similar, is that you see in your spirit or with the eyes of your spirit. Now, for instance, this vision there in that home was a spiritual vision. That's the lowest type of vision. I saw all of that with my eyes shut. You see, when Jesus said, get your pencil and paper and write it down, I'll give that outline to you then I opened my eyes and I looked around and saw this, my singer's wife and I said to her go out of the living room in the hall she knew where the bedroom and on, in the bedroom there my bedroom there, there's a little pad and pencil lying there bring it to me and so she rushed out of the room brought it back to me handed the pad and the pencil to me and uh, then I shut my eyes when I shut my eyes there stood Jesus he picked up right where he left now uh that's the kind of vision that Paul had on the road to Damascus. Now, he calls that a vision, you know. The Bible said, suddenly a light shined around about him brighter than the noonday sun. And he heard a voice, the ninth chapter of Acts, heard a voice speaking to him from heaven, saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Hard for thee to kick against the bricks. Remember that? Now, when Paul recites that, though, see, that's Luke writing the account of it. Luke wrote Acts. But Paul, in his given account of it, before King Philip, uh, Felix and Agrippa, you remember? Said he saw the Lord. Said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Remember that? Remember that? Now, see, his eyes were shut because the scripture said, go back to the ninth chapter of Acts now, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man. He could not see. Now, he wasn't blind because he is stricken with disease or sickness, for the glory of that light. Paul said, I could not see, for the glory of that light. You look right up there in that TV light. Oh, my goodness. And for a minute, you can't see anything. Well, that light was brighter than the noonday sun. Amen? And he had to be released from that by Ananias coming and laying hands on him. That's not really a case of healing, because healing is a renewal of the body from a diseased condition, and his eyes were not diseased. Did you hear me? He could not see for the glory of that light. But the point I want to make to you is Jesus did appear to him because he said he saw him. And, but he saw him with his eyes shut. His physical eyes were shut. It was a spiritual vision. 
Now, the minute that I shut my eyes, I stood Jesus, same spot. He said, write down, and I wrote it down. I have the original. I wrote it down just exactly the way he said it. Write one, two, three, four. And I wrote that down with my eyes shut. And I got the original piece of paper. It's amazing how good you can write when you're in the Spirit. I wrote one, two, three, four. And I left space because I knew there'd be four points and there'd be something between I need to write down. Amen. Now then, before he gave me the four points, he just simply said, write down one, two, three, four. He said to me, and listen to me real carefully, because if what I'm about to tell you is the truth, you need to hang on to it like it is a life and death matter. You know, when it gets to be a life and death matter, people get serious, don't they? Don't they? Now, he said, if anybody, anywhere, say that out loud, anybody, anywhere. Well, recently, the Lord just simply brought that back to my spirit. I guess that's one reason I'm going along this line. He just kept speaking to me along that line about anybody, anywhere, anybody, anywhere. You see, anybody, anywhere applies to us today just as much as it did then. Anybody applies to you. Anywhere applies right here or anywhere else. If anybody, anywhere, will take these four steps or will put these four principles into operation, they will always, everybody say always, always, always receive from me or from God the Father whatever they want. Jesus gave him some extra biblical instructions. He told him, write down these four things. Well, I got news for Kenneth Hagin. He's no longer with us, of course, but it is written in the word of God. So it's already written. Jesus didn't need you to write down the four points of how to tell me how to get anything I want. From God, because first of all, God's not going to give me everything I want. There's been some things that I wanted in my life. I thought for sure that it was God, and it wasn't God. And I'm sure there's other people out there who the same for you. So now you can look back on it as I do, and I say, Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. You didn't give me what I what I wanted. Oh, Hallelujah! Because God knows better than you. We think we know what we want, but we don't always know what we want. God knows. And how many times has he protected us from the things that we want? So it's a, it's a, these teachings are these new thought, new age kind of teachings where you just take these points and, and uh, follow these points that Jesus gave me. And after all, Jesus gave it to me, so don't. Don't question it then. And uh, you can take these points and then you can get whatever you want from God. Well, that's not in the Bible. God's not going to give you everything you want. We don't know too much. We see through a glass darkly. And, but God is all-knowing. He knows everything. So he got, it, it was taking forever. And you notice Kenneth Hagin is a very, was a very good storyteller. And he, would, he stretched that out for I don't know how many minutes. I was waiting for the four points. What are the four points? 
goes on and on and on when he could have just said it and got it over with. But uh, he likes to keep talking. And then the most annoying thing, I think one of the most annoying things a preacher can do is, are you listening to me? Do you hear me? Are you there? No, you're, you're sitting in front. There's 100 people or 200 people or 10,000 people, whatever, sitting there. And these preachers say, are you listening to me? No, I've got earplugs on. That's why I'm here. I'm sleeping. <laughs> did, you, did you ever feel like yelling, yelling that out? No, I, I'm not listening to you. It's like, please, go. don't use all those preaching tricks on people to try to snap them out of sleeping or whatever. <laughs> it is so annoying. Turn to your neighbor and say to your neighbor, no, leave me alone. Anyway, here's, uh, I'm going to play a couple of these clips to, uh, I'll, I'll play this clip from Charles Capps and Creflo Dollar. Then I'm going to play a couple of clips from these new age, new thought people. And you're going to see that a lot of the things that they say compared to a lot of the teachings today of the so-called Word of Faith people. Dematerialize and cease to exist. I now declare that all my debts, mortgages, and notes are paid in full, canceled, and dissolved. Jesus said, whatever I loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Therefore, I loose the finances that are owed to me. I call this money in so that these accounts are paid in Jesus' name. Owe you money or clients who owe your business money, you can loose those finances to flow to you. So uh, make a list of those people, businesses, organizations, place those things in front of you. And uh, here's the thing you say. We're going we're gonna to repeat this after Matthew, Matthew 18 and 18. Ready? Jesus said, whatever I loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Therefore, I loose the finances that are owed to me. I call this money in so that these accounts are paid in Jesus' name. Amen. I tell you, the word of God will work if we loose it and we work it. And so we received that done. Now, what about timely payments on monthly bills? I mean, you know, all kinds of stuff's going on, the fear of losing your job and all that. Remember, we have access to the word. We have access to the supernatural. Again, uh, something that represents your bills, or when you get home, take all your bills and put them in a sack like Taffy and I did 30-something years ago. Now, say this over timely payments of your bills. Repeat, repeat after me. God supplies all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God is the source of my supply. And I have more than enough to pay my bills on time. Be paid in full in Jesus' name. Wow. The thing is, we can't command and decree and declare and make things happen. We're totally dependent on God to bring forth what we need and to meet our needs. And yes, God said he would meet our needs according to his riches and glory 
by Christ Jesus. And we can stand on that scripture, but we, it's not in our power to decree and declare and command things to come to us. That's not in our power. So you, you can kind of see, you see this whole new thought pattern that came from the new thought Emerson School of Oratory there where E.W. Kenyon attended. And uh, I'm going to play a couple of clips from some of the people that were also back in the late 1800s espousing this new thought philosophy. These people are not Christians. They're not born-again Christians. They use the mind sciences to bring about things that they want. They love to use that one scripture as a as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. They misquote that scripture also and uh, make you believe that whatever you think you can bring to pass, and you should never have a negative thought. Well, we all go through trials in life and we, and we all go through things, but just because you're thinking that you're going through a trial or you're going through a hard time is going to make it worse. You know, that's... That's the mind sciences. But anyway, I'm going to play a couple of these clips. Remember, these people are not Christians. This is not Christian doctrine. I'm only playing these so that you can make the comparison to some of these word of faith teachers today. You'll hear a lot of the same things. The way of the Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life, spoke the Christ through the lips of the Nazarene. You're holding to the words... Christ is the way. When you are perplexed and confused and can see no way of escape, will invariably open a way of complete deliverance. Is. When Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, he said to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Webster, in his definition of spirit, says, In the abstract, life or consciousness viewed as an independent type of existence, one manifestation of the divine nature, the Holy Spirit. God, then, is not, as many of us have been taught to believe, a big personage or man residing somewhere in a beautiful region in the sky called heaven, where good people go when they die and see him clothed in ineffable glory. Nor is he a stern, angry judge, only awaiting opportunity somewhere to punish bad people who have failed to live a perfect life here. God is spirit, or the creative energy that is the cause of all visible things. God as spirit is the invisible life and intelligence underlying all physical things. There could be no body or visible part to anything unless there were first spirit as creative cause. God is not a being or person having life, intelligence, love, power. God is that invisible, intangible, but very real, something we call life. God is perfect love and infinite power. God is the total of these, the total of all good, whether manifested or unexpressed. There is but one God in the universe, but one source of all the different forms of life or intelligence that we see, whether they be men, animals, trees, or rocks. God is spirit. We cannot see spirit with these fleshly eyes, but when we clothe ourselves with the spiritual body, then spirit is visible or manifest, and we recognize it. You do not see the living, thinking me when you look at my body. You see only the form which I am manifesting. 
God is love. We cannot see love nor grasp any comprehension of what love is, except as love is clothed with a form. All the love in the universe is God. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, does it? It does not make any And notice that they, they say, you can find God in a rock. <laughs> but yet, yet they say, they talk about God, and they talk about God as love, but there is no God. There is no being, this person is saying. And uh, this is a person called Emil, Emily, Emily, Katie, a new thought thinker. It's crazy. Here's another one. Physical health, you will find that the attainment of it is conditional on you getting rich. Only those who are emancipated from financial worry and who have the means to live a carefree existence and follow hygienic practices can have and retain health. Moral and spiritual greatness is possible only to those who are above the competitive battle for existence. And only those who are becoming rich on the plane of creative thought are free from the degrading influences of competition. If your heart is set on domestic happiness, remember that love flourishes best when there is refinement, a high level of thought, and freedom from corrupting influences. And these are to be found only where riches are attained by the exercise of creative thought, without strife or rivalry. You can aim at nothing so great or noble, I repeat, as to become rich, and you must fix your attention upon your mental picture of riches, to the exclusion of all that may tend to dim or obscure the vision. You must learn to see the underlying truth in all things. You must see beneath all seemingly wrong conditions the great one life ever moving forward towards fuller expression and more complete happiness. It is the truth that there is no such thing as poverty, that there is only wealth. Some people remain in poverty because they are ignorant of the fact that there is wealth for them, and these can best be taught by showing them the way to affluence in your own person and practice. Others are poor because, while they feel that there is a way out, they are too intellectually indolent to put forth the mental effort necessary to find that way and by travel it. Others still are poor because, while they have some notion of science, they have become so swamped and lost in the maze of metaphysical and occult theories that they do not know which road to take. They try a mixture of many systems and fail in all. For these, again, the very best thing to do is to show the right way in your own person and practice. An ounce of doing things is worth a pound of theorizing. The very best thing you can do for the whole world is to make the most of yourself. You can serve God and man in no more effective way than by getting rich. That is, if you get rich by the creative method and not by the competitive one. Another thing. We assert that this book gives in detail the principles of the science of getting rich. And if that is true, you do not need to read any other book upon the subject. This may sound narrow and egotistical, but consider. There is no more scientific method of computation in mathematics than by addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. No other method is possible. <laughs> that's it. Think and grow rich. That's, that's the philosophy. And he, he's telling people that there's no better way to show people how to get riches than to lead by example. So you see that today, and you hear, you hear these egotistical preachers saying, well, look, it worked for me. Follow me. You see how I got rich, and you could be rich too just by following these principles. And there's eight principles on how to get riches 
And uh, so, but no, you don't want to be like most of these people, how, how they got their wealth because they didn't get it honestly. And they, they definitely didn't get it by trusting God. But you can, you can see here, this book was written, I think, in the early 1900s or the late 1800s by a man named Waddles. And he wrote this book on how to get rich. And you can see how this, some of the Word of Faith teachers have adopted some of these principles into their teachings. Here's another guy called Proctor. I don't remember his first name, but here he's talking about self-esteem. Now, this sounds familiar, right? In 1960, it was called Self-Image Psychology, Psycho-Cybernetics. It's a phenomenal book. He said it was the greatest discovery of his generation. He was a cosmetic or a reconstructive surgeon, and he found he would do work on people. He might have been a nose job or removed a terrible scar. And he noticed that when he did that, there was a phenomenal change in their personality. But he noticed with others, he would make a phenomenal physical change and there was no change in their personality. And that led him to postulate that we have two images. We have the one that's coming back from the mirror, but we've got an inner image. And that inner self-image is literally controlling our life. You will find people that have a very poor self-image or low self-esteem. They won't look you straight in the eye. They're afraid to shake hands with you. They're very shy and withdrawn. They go through life hiding from life. They don't like themselves. They don't know themselves. Do you know when a person improves their self-image, they change their entire life. Their income changes, their relationship changes, their health changes. And do you know how you do that? Start studying you. Start to find out more about you. There's something phenomenal about you. Do you know when I began to study this material 57 years ago, I had very poor self-image. I had low self-esteem. I took dumb jobs. I never earned any money. I never had fun. I had poor relationships. And as I started to study, started to study real solid information. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Bible says don't think of yourself more highly than you are, right? So... It's not so important to uh, have self-esteem. You see that the word self is in there? We're only what we are because of the Lord. And we should always remember where we came from. That shouldn't ruin your self-image. Don't try to get affirmation from human beings. It's nice when people pay you a compliment. Yeah, that's nice. Of course, flattery is wrong. We shouldn't flatter people by not telling them the truth just because we're trying to gain an advantage with that person but ultimately you might not get affirmation from human beings because they can like you one minute and hate you the next and then they're not affirming you anymore <laughs> and you can't let that crush you so it's always better to be dependent on the Lord and, and uh, what he has to say because he's never going to leave you or forsake you human beings will yeah, they will. And they will disappoint you. So if that shatters you, then uh, you're in a bad place with the Lord because it shouldn't shatter you. It might shatter you temporarily, especially if you've been through a divorce or a long illness or something like that. Yeah. 
then you might feel a little shattered, of course, for a time, but eventually things get easier and the Lord heals your broken heart and you can carry on. As long as we're always looking to the Lord to uh, bring us out of situations. But you see, they have the answer that you just, you have to see yourself a certain way. I'm going to play this last clip here. This is by this guy, Proctor. So, you know, that, that, that's know what just size, uh, If you ask the average person who they are, they'll give you their name. They'll say, I'm Bob Proctor, but I'm not. Bob and Proctor are two words. My parents give them to me. They're called names, but it's not me. It's my name. Then somebody will say, well, this is me, but this isn't me either. It's my body. Like, you never phone down here to the, to the studio and say, body won't be in today. It's sick. Okay. You know, we don't say am hand or am leg. It's my hand, my leg, my body, my name. Who am I? Well, that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. And I believe if a person will start to study that and look for the answer, they'll find it. See, I think we live simultaneously on three planes of understanding. We're okay. spiritual creatures, we have an intellect, and we live in physical bodies. Okay. But because we lack awareness or understanding of who we are, we're totally locked into a physical world, and we let things outside of us control us. 95% of the population are reacting to life. They're not really living at all. I don't think you determine what your purpose is. I think you discover what your purpose is. There's a difference. Determining indicates deciding. Um, and I don't think you decide. I think if you go about it the right way, you discover it. Like there's some people that should be painting all day. They're great artists. I think Michelangelo was obviously a great artist, a great sculptor. I mean, that was his purpose in his life. Well, I believe my purpose is doing what I'm doing. Your purpose is why you get out of bed in the morning. Do you know why you get up? Well, most people say, well, it's to go to work. Well, that'd be a good reason to stay in bed. You know, you say, well, everybody's doing it. That'd be another reason to stay in bed. If you're ever doing what everybody's doing, you're probably going in the wrong direction. Your purpose is your reason for living. What you want to do is sit down and maybe take a pen and a pad and then ask yourself, what do I really love doing? Now, you may have to spend a while at this. You might get up an hour early every morning and go sit under a tree somewhere if you're in a nice climate or pick a favorite chair someplace. Now, we hear a lot about that right now. Isn't that a big thing, especially with Joel Osteen, is your purpose? Of course, this guy is a New Age teacher. I'm not recommending his teachers' teachings. He's just Bob Parcher. I'm only playing these things to let you hear what the comparisons are. Now, a lot of us in our life, we have things that we really want to do, but we can't do them because of other reasons. You might have a family and uh, so you have to maybe take a job that you don't 100% love. We all have to do things we really don't want to do to, uh, sometimes to try to earn a living. And uh, maybe it's going to be later on in life when you're older that you can do some things that you really want to do when you're retired and uh, you have your retirement income. So... 
life isn't always, uh, it doesn't always go according to the way we want it to go. We always are going to have twists and turns in life. We're going to have great disappointments. We're going to suffer uh, death, our own death and the, and people that we love. So you just don't know how life is going to go. And it, none of us know that. And we have to be ready for that. So you might not have... You might not have you might not ever really get to do your purpose or what you think your purpose is. We know that one of uh our one of the things that we're here on earth to do is to share Jesus Christ with people and to share what he's done for us because all of us that have been born again, we know what Jesus did for us without a shadow of a doubt. We know it. And uh, we don't backslide we don't go back to our old life. We don't go back to the pig pen because we know what that is. All of us that have been born again, we all know what the, what the old life was. And for most of us, there's no way we're ever going back to it. And so we can have that knowing of our purpose is to share Jesus Christ and, and the good things that he's done for us. So whether or not we achieve the things that we really wanted to do as far as a job or writing a book or being a public speaker or pastoring a church or uh, some of the other things people really want to do, but maybe they can't do because of uh, finances. We, we can know that there's one thing, there's one purpose that we really do have, and that's to share the gospel. Because all of us have a testimony, all of us that have been saved. We can say, we know without a shadow of a doubt what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I know in whom I'm ha I have believed. I know it with all my heart what Jesus did for me. And you can know too. Maybe there's people listening today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you can know. You can know that you're going to heaven. You can definitely know that. You can know that your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. And Jesus Christ said he gives you a brand new life. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's a promise. If you call upon the name of the Lord today, and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and ask him to forgive you of your sins. He will. He will come in and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and he gives you a brand new life. It's You get a brand new life and you know it. You know that all things have passed away and all things have become new. And then your search is over. You don't have to search anymore. I don't have to search and go here and go there and go on top of a mountain and go to Tibet or or any of that. 
my search is over. I found what I was looking for when I found the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, he saved me, and he gave me a brand new life a life with meaning and with purpose that I didn't deserve. No, I didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He lived for 33 years on the earth. Everybody knows the story. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he said he's coming again. So no matter what's going on in the world now, we have a precious promise that Jesus is coming again and he will deliver us and he will rescue us. So God bless you today. I want to thank everybody for listening. All my listeners around the world, especially in Great Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States, thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to contact me, Susan at propheticnews.com. God bless you all today, and we'll see you next week. Blessed be.